Welcome to Our Opinions Are Correct, a podcast about science fiction. I'm Annalie Newitz. I'm a science journalist who writes science fiction. I'm Charlie Jane Anders. I'm a science fiction writer who's pretty obsessed with science. And we have our very first guest today, and hopefully not our last guest. We'll see how it goes. (laughs) (laughs) We don't burn everything down. Um, I'm Maggie Takuda Hall. I'm a lady you found on the street to talk about animals. (laughs) Also a children's book author and the host of the Drunk Safari podcast. So we knew that we had to have her come in to talk to us about today's theme, which is animals in science fiction and fantasy. And partly this is something on our minds because the new Jurassic Park movie is coming out. Um, The new Pacific Rim movie came out. Rampage is out, which I'm sure like 0.001% of you saw. Uh, But today that's what we're going to be talking about. And get ready for Tooth and Claw. Humans are animals. A lot of these stories are about sort of finding that line between humans and animals. So I think it's funny when there's this aha moment of like, but no, humans are animals. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, like I feel like we make so many different ways of trying to be like animals. They're just like us. When really what we're trying to say is like, we're just animals. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And like the way that we talk about animals too, I think can be so illuminating for how we feel lines should be drawn between different types of people as well. Like we really only talk about animals as a way of talking about ourselves because we're like such a self-centered species. It's true. (laughs) And there's a ton of different themes in science fiction and fantasy and fairy tales too, which are Mm -hmm. kind of a a subset of fantasy or maybe fantasy is a subset of fairy tales, but (laughs) that that are basically entirely about using animals as a kind of metaphor for human relationships. Yeah, and you know, people are often defined by their relationship with animals in fictional narratives and you know, every... Hero has to have a cute animal sidekick or has to like have some animal that he or she interacts with at some point that's like important to the story in some way. And, you know, and the more we learn about animals, yeah, the more we realize that everything that we think makes us special is also true of them. Yeah, animals use tools, animals have language. Um, they have funerals. They have funerals and they have, um, you know, shared uh, stories. They teach each mm-hmm. other about um, migratory paths and... So we know that they have intergenerational education. Yeah, um, in so some cases they have uh, royalty. And they also, they've done studies recently that dolphins call each other by specific names. And so like a lot of the things that we tell ourselves are like, we're special or just not. Yeah, yeah. I'm really excited for the day when we finally are able to actually have a conversation with a dolphin. Right. And it's like, <laughs> yeah, you know, we could have been doing that all along yeah. if we had just <laughs> taken seriously the fact that the problem with communication with them wasn't that they couldn't communicate, but that we didn't have the tools to, you know, talk in the type of sonar that they're using. Right, and trying to teach them English was just, like, not a fruitful way to <laughs> <Right>. get it. <laughs> they can learn that... sign language. They don't have, like, you know... Yeah, <laughs> but isn't that, like, the perfect human thing, right? That we would yeah. be trying to teach them English. Well, that'll prove that they're smart if they can learn English. Yeah. Yeah, not yeah. so much, so... And I'm actually obsessed with the concept of domestication and, like, mm-hmm. the process of... of domesticating an animal because I feel like it has a lot in common with the ways that we're all kind of indoctrinated into society and the ways that we're trained to kind of become members of whatever society we're in. Yeah, totally. I think that it ends up being like a really interesting way of thinking about how um, we decide certain people or animals are acceptable and other ones aren't, Mm -hmm. which I think is like 
a conversation that can go in so many directions, but obviously like leads us directly into race. Yeah, yeah. for sure. So um, just to have a moment of science geekery before we plunge into talking about um, race and animals in sci-fi and fantasy, which is that now um, a lot of anthropologists talk about humans being domesticated too, and that mm. there was this phase in human development, basically right around the time that we uh, start having agriculture and living in houses year round, that humans biology changes, um, the kind of food that we eat changes, um, and the food we can eat changes. People uh, in the West become lactose tolerant, and so they're able to have uh, dairy products from the animals they're raising. And so there is this shift where our bodies change the way animals have. And so just as we're domesticating animals, we're also domesticating ourselves, which goes right back to what we were saying about how humans, animals, it's all kind of the same. <laughs> right. um, but then, there, you know, we constantly have these fantasies about how do we continue the domestication project with these certain types of animals right. that just don't fit in? such as, most obviously, King Kong. Right. Um, one of the earliest stories in this genre. So King Kong, obviously, as many people have pointed out, uh, is kind of a stand-in for kind of Africans, kind of Caribbean people in the Caribbean. Like it's... They're like pan-brown people. Like, <laughs> brown, you're kind of frightening. <laughs> Some kind of... Um, you know, savage other yeah. that, that comes from a distant place um, and that a bunch of white people really want to, first of all, put on display, mm -hmm. um, which again is something that white people in history did with people of color, especially indigenous people um, at world fairs and things like that. Um, but also they want to turn King Kong into a, an upstanding ape. Why, the whole world will pay to see this. No chains will ever hold that. We'll give him more than chains. He's always been king of his world, but we'll teach him fear. Well, I think they think of him like a zoo animal more like, but just like manageable, which right. like that's like as far as they're willing to assimilate him and he's not. Like is like the moral of that story. Right. Yeah, he won't be. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's something that's kind of amazing. Like we see that again and again in these stories that there's these animals that refuse to be domesticated. So that's actually like the central theme of Zootopia, which is like just a long metaphor for how we talk about race as humans. I'm, but the main question of the movie is that there are predators living alongside herbivores and the predators, uh, though they've all evolved to be like this wonderful society, may not actually be fit for it. And so it's like a, their way of talking about race went exactly into that. I gotta tell you, you are even cuter than I thought you'd be. Ooh. <laughs> You probably didn't know, but a bunny can call another bunny cute, but when other animals do it, it's a little... <gasps> I am so sorry. Yeah, and that was actually just a clip from Zootopia. And in the, I love in that clip about where they're the word cute uh, ends up standing in for, I mean, I think in that case it's the N word, but it could be a lot of different things. Yeah. It's, I feel like it's most directly the N word, but what's hilarious to me about it is like the script is exactly correct, but they still gave the two major parts to white actors. And so it's this whole thing about how racism is stupid and racial profiling is never going to help anyone. 
Um, and then they're like, here's Jennifer Goodwin and that guy from Arrested Development. <laughs> oh, they God. will explain to you what the N-word means. Yeah. I was just going to say that cartoon animals have been stand-ins for race or racial concerns forever. I mean, if you ever have a chance to rewatch the movie Dumbo, <gasps> yeah. that movie is horrifying yeah. with but all the, the racial, the crows who are basically just like oh, black stereotypes. No. And there's a bunch of other stuff in that movie that's just like, what are you doing, Disney? Oh, and man. like, I feel like a lot of cartoons from back then, like, they only show them now with like a huge disclaimer, like the classic like 1940s cartoons. Yeah. Uh, but cartoon animals have always provided a way of kind of like looking at race, looking at different kinds of people by like just transposing them into this other form. And kind of, like, Zootopia is probably the most extreme example of this, but mm-hmm. like trying to kind of make a metaphor for, for racial otherness or difference or you know, the kind of question of living together. Yeah, I really liked um, Laylene Paul's uh, recent novel, The Bees, which is very much in the same vein. Partly I liked it just because she did a great job of actually incorporating a lot of recent science about how bees live, while also turning it into a fairy tale about, you know, sort of (laughs) bees having this kind of ancestral um, religion. And the main character is a bee who's a worker bee um, who is black and has kind of curly fur um, and ends up kind of conquer. I mean, spoiler, she ends up kind of becoming a queen, uh, which I don't think can actually happen in a, in a hive situation in real life. But it's very clear as we're reading the book that what she's dealing with here is that here is a black bee in among all these yellow bees who think that they're so awesome and pretty and great. Um, but it turns out that the worker bee is the strongest and the most capable of leading the hive. Which, again, of course, that's not how hives work in real life. But um, <laughs> the queen is not the leader. But in this case, she is. And it's, um, it's such a beautiful book. It's like half Beatrix Potter, half science nerd. It's just, it's just terrific. Um, so one of the other things that happens in stories about animals is that we use them to look at metaphors of sort of class or political strife, like getting away a little bit from the race issue and one of the books that of course sticks with anyone who's read it is Watership Down uh, mm-hmm. by Richard Adams which is kind of one of those the books <laughs> that you read like in elementary school or junior high and it makes you cry for like a month afterward um, and that's about basically different rabbit warrens represent different kinds of um, social groups different kinds of political systems so there's the nice guys led by Fiverr who's this kind of religious figure who wants to create social democracy I think he has a vision yeah he has a vision of social democracy I mean kind of a social democracy something where people are where the where the rabbits are all equal yeah um and then they visit one warren where the rabbits are all kind of like lazy consumers who are being destroyed and are being eaten by humans and then one Warren that's being run by an evil fascist rabbit who's very militarized and so we kind of walk through um you know the different types of of human relationships that way and of course animal farm is an even more extreme example yeah i feel like animal farm is the most on the nose like you want to talk about animals and politics (laughs) don't worry and i think that's really where the fairy tale thing comes in because fairy tales have been using animals as like political metaphors as like these two animals represent two different political positions um forever and you can go back to like Chaucer's like the Parliament of Foulis, which is like a poem that had a huge influence on me where there's like a, a parliament of birds and they're debating political topics, but they're all birds. 
Um, and, you know, a lot of the Grimm Brothers fairy tales have, like, animals kind of, like, having political debates among themselves. Yeah. And it's clearly supposed to be, like, you know, a very plug-and-play metaphor for humans. Yeah, I literally just was thinking, oh, Democrats and Republicans are, of course, both animals. Yeah. Yeah. Don- yeah. <laughs> Who chose those animals? Yeah. I know. Like, donkey and elephant. I mean, mm-hmm. to be fair, neither one is great although elephants are kind of badass i I love elephants elephants, although they're the elephant party and they're trying to wipe out the elephants right now i know the irony runs deep yeah it's not and also elephants are a matriarchy so i feel like you know that would have been maybe good for them to remember yeah (laughs) in terms of contemporary fairy tales there's right now the tale of despero by kate DiCamillo, which was like a newberry award winner but accidentally or like interestingly makes some points about class that i don't know if they were intended or not and it's about a mouse who's in with a princess and spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't read or seen the tale of despero he doesn't get to marry the princess even though he loves her is it a human princess or a it's a princess? human princess oh. she's a lady um and he just like he loves her and he does the kind of um uh, traditional chivalry thing but in the book she makes a point to be like but mice can't marry humans and it's like kind of an interesting like moment of like you can't marry up really like <laughs> in class and i don't think that that was the entire intention but when you start talking about animals, I think it's so easy to accidentally say the, or incidentally say these things at the same time as just writing a cute fairy tale mm-hmm. about a mouse in love with a princess. Yeah, it's so interesting. <laughs> I, I guess, guess like Stuart yeah. Little has that same theme because mm-hmm. Stuart falls in love with a bird and they can't really be together, even though they're technically the same size. I mean, <laughs> I, mean I was thinking like <laughs> that a mouse and a crazy. princess thing would be difficult. I mean, right. consummation would be interesting. Um, <laughs> I mean, like totally the... doable. Like, why not, right? Like, sure. anything can be done. We have machines, okay? Um, but just I like just... a giant exoskeleton, like a mouse <laughs> yes. and like a, a giant mecha exoskeleton. I don't mean to like take this Newbery Award winner and turn it into No, this is a book I'm much more interested in, honestly. <laughs> I would totally read that, actually. I would like, read the hell out of that. Yeah. What it, I mean, and, and actually, that, that would be a great story about, like, how do you overcome those boundaries? Yeah. And, like, you... So we already actually have had a mouse mech situation, although they, they don't uh, consummate their, their relationship. But in Ratatouille, the Pixar movie, we have the rat chef manning a human station, basically. Right. Um, and that one's kind of a funny, like, way to think about animals because it's kind of about um socioeconomic class but it's also about human arrogance and believing that we're like so special that we could be the only ones to accomplish this sort of like thing we consider particularly human yeah and he actually drives the person around right like he's pulling on his ears yeah. and telling him what to somehow do his and, like... hair makes him a full marionette which <laughs> is logic that i never care to question yeah. oh no it's great i also the thing I also love about Ratatouille is that like rats are always treated as like the dirtiest and the baddest and, yeah. the, and they are they're like they're living in the slums of the slums of the slums you know yeah. and it's like and then they triumph they make the most like fussy white food ever right right like, I mean green food but made by white people yeah um that's yeah so he he's an awesome triumph so other ways that, that these kinds of um, stories deal with human folly, um, I think Okja is a great example of that. Yeah. That was like, that's Bong Joon-ho being, being upsetting as usual. Yeah, and it's basically about what we would call Frankenfood, actually. It's a company that is looking for the ultimate meat source, and they find 
an animal whose DNA allow, I, I believe that it's actually an animal that they find somewhere, but then they enhance its DNA and it becomes a super pig. So it's a pig, but it's like the size of a buffalo. And oh, I thought it was like a hippo hybrid when I saw the pictures of it. Yeah, it's actually, we never really know because part of it is that they that the company pretends that it's an animal that they've just found in the deepest forest, but mm. we get the sense because it's a biotech company that they've genetically engineered it. Mm. And in the process of genetically engineering this pig, hippo, rhino, buffalo creature, it turns out that they've made an animal that's really intelligent too. And so we learn that through this little girl who's helped raise one of them. And it's uh, very much about how um, humans think that they can create this amazing food source, but then their food source is actually a person, you know, or it, it's very much like a person. And that actually makes me think of Jurassic Park, which is another story about human folly and kind of tampering with forces of yada, yada, yada. And, <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, and, you know, Jurassic Park is one of those things where it's partly a playing God story, but it's also partly just like about a wildlife preserve and about like how we treat wildlife and like conservation and stuff. Mm -hmm. In the same way Okja is about how we treat um, livestock, you know, what, mm -hmm. what do we do to the animals that we're raising for food and how horrific that is. But also, I mean, it's to go back to the domestication thing, I think it's partly about that too, you know, that we're, how do we incorporate animals into our lives as modern urban people? There's also the question of um, how we use animals, and I think Jurassic Park and both Okja kind of touch on that, but my favorite example of that is the trash movie Deep Blue Sea, <laughs> in which a group of scientists um, make sharks extra large so that their brains get bigger, so that they can extract a liquid from their heads, this is how this works, Oh yeah. Um, that will cure Alzheimer's. <laughs> <laughs> and Ooh. as a side effect, the sharks get smarter and it turns into this like terrible horror movie. But it's exactly this theme of like, we thought we were so smart. We thought there was a way that we could use these animals and inevitably, absolutely, we cannot, you cannot tamper with things like that and then not be bitten off the side of a platform. <laughs> Just what the hell did you do to those sharks? Their brains weren't large enough to harvest sufficient amounts of the protein complex. So we violated the Harvard Compact. Jim and I used gene therapies to increase their brain mass. Larger brain means more protein. As a side effect, the sharks got smarter. You stupid bitch! Yeah, and that was actually just a clip from Deep Blue Sea. My favorite. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, it's funny to me that like we constantly in these movies come back to this idea that it's bad to do genetic engineering on animals because it's playing God, but yet it's somehow okay to be raising them on farms and domesticating them. Like mm -hmm. that's just natural, even <laughs> though that also changes their genetic makeup. Um, so I think, you know, it's, it's just one of those things where it's an anti-science moment where mm -hmm. obviously these are movies about genuine problems in how we treat animals but the right. problem isn't messing with their dna the problem is horribly abusing them while they're alive and treating them literally like garbage well and there's also while we're on the theme of treating them horribly um westworld in the new season has been using animals now like the way that they're popping up and i'm pretty sure it's like a visual metaphor for like how we treat 
other well the artificial intelligence of the park that is arguably human um and they're using the animals as a way to kind of visually signify that they've lost control there and so there is something like it works really well i think as a visual metaphor for that reason that the animals are showing wild tendencies yeah exactly that it can't be controlled and like Spoiler alert, in the first episode of season two, a Bengal tiger randomly shows up in Westworld, and they're like, that shouldn't have happened. How did this... Something's wrong. (laughs) And the way that they're using the animals to show that, like, humans may have been able to create this entire world, but we're not actually competent enough to control it. Yeah, exactly. And and again, of course, as you said, it's totally a metaphor for how we try to control each other. Exactly, yeah. The the humans in the park are not uh, controllable either. This gets to another big theme in these stories, which is just having animals be kind of metaphors for human personalities. I feel like in Philip Pullman's series, uh, His Dark Materials, the daemons that all the characters have, I mean, that's the most obvious one. Yeah. And, um, and sometimes actually a little bit annoying, but... It's unfortunate that everyone who is a servant has a dog as a demon. Like, there's moments like that where you're like, oh, that, that doesn't seem right. <laughs> <laughs> But I do love it as, like, it's one of those things where, like, the art he made sometimes becomes greater than him, because then you can think about that in terms of, like, well, what's my demon? And it becomes, like, a really fun way for kids and adults alike to kind of think about themselves and the people around them. And so, I don't know. So it works in that way. Yeah, Yeah, it works in that way. Kind of the same way that the Patronus works in Harry Potter, where it's, like... There's There aren't any accidental statements about that one, I feel, or in mm-hmm. wrapped in that one. But, um, you know, Hermione and Ron having similarly species Patronuses tells you something about their fitness to be with one another. Oh, wow. I forgot about that. Yeah. That's so funny. <laughs> I wanted to bring up, you know, in terms of, like, people having animal companions that are kind of fantastical that reflect something about them. You know, the pink lion in Steven Universe is, like, my favorite and, like... <laughs> has this really whole complicated relationship. It kind of reflects how innocent and sweet Stephen is, that he has this, like, friendly lion that never hurts anybody. But also the lion represents his mother and all these mysteries, and it's, like, a complicated metaphor and the cutest thing ever. It's also a portal, which I think is really interesting, Mm. going back to what you were saying, Maggie, about how this is a way for us to... for people to think about themselves. You know, it's like it becomes a portal through which you can kind of journey and then look at yourself from another perspective and that's totally how he uses lion it's like he dives inside of his own lion and then, <laughs> you know i mean but it's that which sounds creepy when i say it but it's actually quite beautiful and and cute and sweet there's actually a youtube short that you should all watch everybody out there of like the lion just all trying to get animals. into a bunch of boxes it's just like <laughs> a minute long how many can the lion fit in this box can we fit in this box anyway the the unadorable version of it is the lion cat in the saga series um who the, travels with this assassin um and i feel like it's kind of an extension of his personality like he's like a no bullshit incredibly competent assassin and um, recon gatherer and he has this cat with him who's able to tell and is also kind of a portal into himself as well because the lion cat will tell him that he's lying as well like he's not immune to its services yeah <laughs> it's like he's literally got a bullshit detector yeah. going around with him yeah and it's and the only thing that the cat ever says is lying yeah and yeah. you know if you're not lying the cat will just be quiet and yeah. you can actually hear it like, that is, it sounds almost like cats are saying that when they meet yeah. anyway. Like, when my cats, you know, talk to me, pretty much that's all they ever say. <laughs> I promise I'm going to feed you. Lying. 
Um, The kind of dark side of this, I think, is the Planet of the Apes series, which it's kind of about, you know, it being a metaphor for personalities. It's also a little bit about some of the other stuff that we've talked about, the sort of socioeconomic issues, racial issues come up in a lot of the Planet of the Apes stories. Uh, But it is also just a story about how if humans were replaced by another type of animal, that the same kind of personality problems that we have as people getting along with each other might crop up again. Uh, Because some of the issues that the apes have, especially in the new trilogy, really are just, you know, issues around jealousy, issues Mm -hmm. around leadership. Um, How do you, how are you a good leader? And, and how do you deal with trauma? How do you, how do you deal with residual trauma from being abused? And that's one of the big issues um, is some of the apes have been horrifically abused by humans and just can't ever imagine reaching any kind of detente with them until they're just all fucking dead. Because, <laughs> um, yeah. geez, you know, if, I, if I'd been tortured like that, I'd probably kill all humans too. One thing I love is like the dog in the movie Coco who goes on this amazing journey. I feel like in some ways Dante the dog has a more fascinating journey than Miguel, his human companion, because by the end of the movie, Dante has been transformed into this sort of beautiful rainbow spirit creature. And Miguel basically goes home and is almost the same person as he was at the start of the movie, except now he's fixed his family. And I love that this is sort of this metaphor in the background about like how just being along on this adventure can transform you. So, okay, let's talk about one of the cheesiest and most ancient themes um, in these kinds of stories, which is humans versus nature, which I feel like we've already been deconstructing that through this whole episode. And Mm -hmm. we're talking about how humans basically are animals, animals are us, and yet we keep wanting to have this fantasy that somehow we are different and better and more awesome which is why we gotta kill all the snakes on the plane (laughs) we have to fight against the giant out of control monster um, whether that's a monster from another dimension sent by aliens who are trying to terraform the earth I'm not really sure what's going on in Pacific Rim Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, go ahead. What were you thinking? I thought you were talking about Starship Troopers. And I was like, no, no, we went and bombed them first. Then they bombed us. Right. Well, and that's, like, often the case, you know, that it's, like, that we start it. Yeah. But, yeah, so... Starship Troopers is another Ugh. great example. Tell us tell us your feelings about Starship Troopers. I love Starship Troopers. I saw it on my 13th birthday in the theater. It's <laughs> <laughs> <That was> awesome. <laughs> um, and it was like deeply upsetting to me at the time. And I think one of the things, first of all, that movie only gets better uh, over time. It's like a, I didn't recognize it for what it was when I first saw it, which was like a brilliant satire of uh, jingoism at the time I was like oh this is very upsetting and I think at the time what was so upsetting to me is and what's upsetting about the humans versus nature in general theme and the reason we why we always revisit it is because there's nothing more upsetting than being like I made my own perfectly controlled little universe and I'm just trying my best and having anything come and ruin that (laughs) (laughs) and we use animals as being a metaphor for that and it could have just as easily been bad luck like, could do the same thing in a story, could function the same way. Um, but in Starship Troopers, it's, like, definitely a case of we were trying to invade too far into the galaxy, we took a step too far, and now we are at war with these hyper-intelligent bugs mm-hmm. who have a similarly stratified society as we have. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, it's and this kind of does go back to... It is a humans versus nature thing, but it is also about colonization mm-hmm. and about race and the fact that they call these creatures bugs. It's very clear that that's supposed to be kind of a racist term for, you know, what are basically sentient creatures um, and who 
can't possibly be bugs because they evolved on another world. <laughs> so there's something right. else. <laughs> yeah, and I think that just as the line between humans and animals is sometimes blurry, the line between aliens and animals is frequently incredibly blurry because mm-hmm. like there's so many stories about meeting creatures on another planet and just thinking that they're animals and then realizing later that they were actually intelligent. I think there's an episode of Futurama where they start eating these creatures called poplars and later realize that they're actually really smart and fry yeah. eat a bunch of them. And, oh. um, and the, the little fuzzy books, um, yeah. John Scalzi just wrote one of them, um, but they originated in the 1960s and that was very much about like, uh, oh, we thought that these little fuzzy creatures that we could eat were just, I don't know, Mice. <laughs> they were just delicious critters. mice. But then now they want to marry the princess. So um, <laughs> it's really important that we... Um, and so I feel like, yeah, we get a lot of these these tales that are kind of about aliens, kind of about animals, where we have to just fight and kill them. It's an incredibly... Like, it's a genre that goes back really far with, like, Jaws, the birds. I think King Kong could even be considered part of that. Birdemic. Um, Birdemic. Don't forget Birdemic. Um, don't forget, like, Sharktopus, um, exactly. which is definitely in the tradition of... And Who then could I, forget Sharktopus? Yeah. Megashark I versus Supergator. I love Sharktopus. And actually, I like Megashark versus Supergator, too. But also, in the 1950s, we had all of the giant animal movies mm-hmm. um, yeah. where, you know, again, sort of stood in for other issues, but it was at bottom about how humans are better than animals. We can outsmart them and we can kill them, uh, no problem. I mean, I think it's only in the last, like, maybe 100 years that we've no longer been at constant risk of being eaten by animals on a fairly regular basis, most of us. The fact that um, the birds ends with them just deciding not to attack humans anymore is my favorite of this genre, or, like, the most intelligent, where it's just a reminder that they can. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's, like, a terribly frightening thing to do, but also, like, kind of the smartest in terms of treating these themes. I mean, there are so many things in real life that we do that I feel like we're going to be horrified by, like eating cephalopods or the way that we have killed dolphins, <sighs> where we're like clearly dealing with like incredible intelligence. When we start to question the boundary between human and animal, then we kind of invent these other boundaries, like intelligent and less intelligent. Mm-hmm. And so, um, like, for example, I don't eat cephalopods because they're probably going to be friends. Um, and, you know, a lot of us don't eat dolphins for the same reason. But why, I mean, why do we privilege that? Like, why do we just, why Why do we privilege, oh, well, these are animals that, you know, are possibly like humans, but, you know, eating a chicken or a fish, like, no big, you know, and, and yeah. I mean, I'm guilty of the same thing. Like, I definitely don't feel a lot of compunction about eating shrimp. Mm-hmm. Um, and whereas, like, I would... I mean, it hurts my heart to, like, see people eat cephalopods. Because I've, I've seen cephalopods hang out and try to escape being killed. And it's it's an upsetting thing. I think, for me anyway, because I'm a person who does those mental gymnastics daily, um, and I'm completely comfortable with it, it's a selfish thing where it's like, oh, if they somehow remind me of myself, then I'm not going to eat them. Right. But, like, I don't look at a chicken and feel a sense of kinship, so I'm like, you are delicious. Yeah, no. like, I, I feel fair. total chicken kinship. That's the yeah. weird thing. I mean, it's not that I don't eat them, but yeah. like, um, yeah. you know, I see chickens hanging out and I'm like, yeah, that's me just kind of hanging out, <laughs> like poking on the food. It's, like, not, yeah. it's not a thing I can philosophically defend. It's only a thing that I'm like, yes, I'm aware that this is like a personality defect, but yeah. it, it's a very uh-huh, human thing, I think, to those gymnastics to do. And what a lot of these stories address are that like 
the ways that we do this that are arbitrary or unfair. Yeah. Okja, I think, does a great job of that. And I think probably all of us sitting here at this table would eat synthetic meat if we could. Oh, yeah. 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 In a heartbeat. Yeah. Yeah. If I could just have something that was, like, grown in a vat and, Mm -hmm. and, you know, tasted like chicken, Mm -hmm. I'd be like... Give me that vat. Yeah. Yeah. Um, (laughs) No, totally. Then then I'd just be free to hang out with chickens, and I'd never have to, like, say, like, I'm sorry about all the times I (laughs) ate your friends. (laughs) Yeah. But one thing I wanted to bring up real quick in like there's a bunch of star trek episodes where like everybody suddenly starts devolving and turning into animals like Worf turns into like a raccoon or like Picard <laughs> is turning into a lemur and within the next 12 hours you will begin to exhibit the first signs of your eventual transformation and what will that be i believe you will also de-evolve into an earlier form of primate possibly similar to a lemur or pygmy marmoset you know there's another episode where like captain janeway and tom paris like over evolve and turn into like lizard people and they have turn sex. into sort of slime creatures yeah, yeah they I, turn I into slime con- grubs and have sex and yeah. their babies and the babies are still there at the end of the episode they're just like well we're gonna leave our babies on this planet <laughs> no, we're we're about again. i did like the fact though that the idea that humans would eventually evolve back into like giant grubs though yeah, you know, yeah. Makes sense. Gonna, you know, it makes total sense I, I'm, like, I'm assuming there was a speciation event at some point yeah and like, that was actually what i was gonna bring up which is that one of the main concerns on a lot of science fiction especially lately is the question of human speciating and, like, the X-Men franchise is about human speciating. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of other, like, you know, post-human stories that are about, like, what happens when we're no longer human. And do these post-humans view humans the way that we would view cows or... I mean, in the series, Altered Carbon is kind of about speciation, too, because we have some humans who can live for a really long time and others who can't, and they're essentially turning into two separate species. I mean, they may not be biologically different, but they are different. I feel like there's a lot of young adult novels that cover this in different ways. Like there's the Pretties, Uglies uh, series by Scott Westerfeld where there's like a strong division between people who have had like huge amounts of plastic surgery and that also like amp up their ability to like move quickly, make decisions fast. Um, That, and I feel like the reason that teenagers love thinking about these things are the same reasons I do, um, which is that it does beg questions about like the way that we allow certain privileges to function. Westerfeld stuff really is about being domesticated because they yeah. they become more obedient, I think, too, when they get the brain surgery, right? Yeah, well, they get to, they basically get invited to, like, these great giant cities where, like, all the fun stuff's happening mm-hmm. um, from, like, living in the wilds and the trees to, like, into a city. So it's, like, a very direct domestication wow. thing. Yeah, yeah interesting. <laughs> So this gets into one of my favorite um, ideas in science fiction, which is animal uplift, where, I mean, we're kind of talking about human uplift with speciation, Mm -hmm. but then there's a whole genre um, about animals being given um, either through technology or through some kind of genetic engineering, um, they become human equivalent. So they're like Rocket Raccoon in Guardians of the Galaxy, um, or they're like the animals in um, We Three, which is like Grant Morrison's comic, which will make you cry guaranteed do not read it unless you are comfortable crying wherever you are so these are animals similar to rocket raccoon who through cybernetic implants a cute puppy a cute kitty and a cute bunny um sorry i just shouldn't say that um they're adorable um i am am not a bunny so i i'm just gonna call them adorable um they become a human equivalent 
And so this becomes like an even more sort of turbocharged version of the story of domestication, I feel like, because often these animals are, they're uplifted to be used as slaves, just like the apes in Planet of the Apes. And, you know, part of what's fascinating about these uplifting stories is that they never become human. They might become human equivalent, but they still have their own, you know, personalities and their own drives that are not the same as ours. And that's kind of where the friction often enters into it. Well, one of my favorite examples of that is um, Snowball on Rick and Morty in episode two, where the um, Jerry puts too many batteries in the thing that will help him become more intelligent and makes this dog like a hyper intelligent cyborg. Um, And he ends up just like rounding up all the dogs and taking them to another planet because they can no longer be with humans. Yeah. Which (laughs) I feel like if they were, if they could... Yeah, that's the immortal, the immortal moment where, you know, Snowball has finally, um, you know, realized what's happened to him and he goes into Summer's bedroom and says, where are my testicles, Summer? Where are my testicles, Summer? They were removed. Where have they gone? Oh, wow. That's an intense line of questioning, Snuffles. Do not call me that. (laughs) Snuffles was my slave name. You shall now call me Snowball because my fur is pretty and white. Despite it being just, um, you know, a goofy satire, it's yeah. actually one of the best animal uplift stories ever. Um, I'm also a big fan of Robert Rapino's novel Mort, which is a, a really radical uplift scenario where every, almost seems like almost every domesticated animal on Earth is uplifted somehow. We don't quite understand how. Mort is a cat uh, who's uplifted and they just go on a rampage to kill all humans. Mm-hmm. And they basically, they gradually replace humans and um and it's really interesting because it's they're struggling not to replicate uh the problems that humanity had and so a lot of the book is them trying to figure out well where was it that humans went wrong and you know they kind of decide that it was religion but maybe it was something else and we don't we never quite i mean it's a trilogy so it it develops over time but it definitely uh is is a really dark vision of how uplift would work I feel like in the years to come, the question of extinction is going to become much more important Mm. in stories about animals and in stories about humans because we are going to see species getting extinct, uh, species that we actually take for granted as like being among us. And it's going to become more of a topic of, I feel like it already is becoming more of a topic where part of what we see in animal stories is the question of like, will they be able to survive as a species or as a cluster of species? Yeah, I feel like every all the best versions of talking about animals beg the question of like, how arrogant are we and how long can we stand to be this arrogant? And I think Franz DeWall's book, Are We Smart Enough to Talk to Animals, uh, is like a, a great uh, like current questioning of exactly that theme. And I think extinction is going to beg is already like laying it bare for us how much damage we've done and how much of it is already irrevocable. And so I look forward to, in a terrible way, the kind of fiction stories that are born of that as people start becoming more aware of how many of the species we've already lost. And also how much these kinds of extinctions will reveal how humans are dependent on animals and how uh, we aren't the shepherds and the bosses of them. We are in a codependent, in the best sense, relationship with animals. We exist in a food web with them. And if animals start dying out, 
that threatens our existence, um, not just because we eat animals, but because also animals help create an environment where we can grow plants too and where we can have food. And so as animals go extinct, you know, I think one of the fantasy scenarios is, oh, humans will be left on some sort of barren world without animals. Mm -hmm. But the fact is, no, you know, we, again, we are animals too. So the more that we drive animals to extinction, uh, the more that our actions drive them to extinction, the more that we will also um, decimate our own population and the more we will suffer from starvation and disease and habitat loss. So, so where the animals go, so go human animals. <laughs> and I think, um, you know, I hope that science fiction and fantasy can come up with some scenarios that allow people to think about that in a way that's positive and not just a dystopia. Yeah, and I want to close by just mentioning a much maligned film, Avatar, <laughs> in which, you know, the theme of animals being having driven extinct on earth is brought up explicitly and the question of whether we're going to preserve this rich uh biome on this other the moon pandora is like the central question and it's you know there's issues with it i understand but i think that as the sequels come out over the next like umpteen years it's going to keep pushing that conversation forward in a way we need to be a little bit more humble about all of this stuff and maybe stop thinking of ourselves as being, um, you know, the apex golden creature um, and remember like, you know, we're just one little piece of a big old food web and like not even the most important part by far. <laughs> so you mentioning extinction made me think about how the episode of Black Mirror, Most Hated in the Nation, which is my most loved um, episode of Black Mirror, is actually really about extinction because uh, bees go extinct and then in order to maintain the ecosystems uh, of the planet, humans invent these little robots that are bees that can then be reprogrammed and become <laughs> the emissaries of death. And so, but, but that's what I love is that the cascade, the sort of cascade of horrible effects starts with the extinction of a, a keystone species, which again, bees, way more important than humans for the globe. <laughs> <laughs> true, true. I mean, if we've learned anything from Deep Blue Sea or Jurassic Park, it's that we are not fit to, <laughs> to completely replace our ecosystems. And I feel like that's like the best, best place I can end my contribution here. <laughs> you have been listening to Our Opinions Are Correct. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode. And thanks to Veronica Simonetti at the Women's Audio Mission for editing and producing skills. Thanks to Chris Palmer for the music. Thanks to Maggie Takuda-Hall for being our first guest. And if you like us, please write a review on Apple Podcasts. Uh, it really helps us. Bye! Bye!